Can you hear me? I have a special mic on, so you should be getting good reception. How's your week been? Very good. Uh, that's so long ago that I have forgotten. I mean, I had an accident on the 403. Wow. What happened? Uh, a sheet of plastic came off a truck and it uh, covered my entire car, two layers, double layer of plastic. So I had to stop. I stopped. The car behind me stopped. And then the third car didn't stop and rammed the car behind me into my car. Oh my God. <laughs> a five car pileup. Five cars. Nate, unbelievable. Were you driving? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Unbelievable. to search for DOS. The description of this podcast is as follows. Search for DOS calls on great minds from the Jewish tradition to unlock meaningful lessons, explore challenging ideas, and reveal personal journeys. There is absolutely no question the following episode meets this stated aim. Our guest is Nate Leipziger. Nate is 95 years old and lives in Toronto. Nate was born in Poland in 1928, and when he was 15 years old, he entered Auschwitz. Nate is one of the 11% of European Jewish children under 16 who lived to see the end of World War II. This number drops to only 1% when you consider Polish Jewish children. Put another way, 89% of Jews and 99% of Polish Jews under 16 were murdered and robbed of the chance to live and shape our world. In other words, Nate is a miracle. Not only is it a miracle that he survived the Holocaust, it is a miracle that at 95 years old, Nate is sharp, witty, and mobile. You heard right in the introduction, Nate is still, in fact, driving. I was fortunate to be connected to Nate thanks to my friend who lives in Toronto. Her name is Amanda Shuchat. And Nate and I first spoke in June. And my normal process is to hold one conversation and then publish the episode. However, after I got off the first call with Nate, I realized, one, how well prepared I was to navigate a conversation with a survivor. And two, how important it is to tell as much of Nate's story as possible. As a result, Nate and I have held additional conversations since, the latest being this past Monday, October 23rd. This most recent conversation provided us an opportunity to talk about 10-7 so Nate could share his thoughts on all that transpired and the atrocities 
Hamas unleashed on Israel. And our discussion on 10-7 begins shortly after the 60-minute mark in this episode. In 2015, Nate published a book titled The Weight of Freedom. His book details a living hell he and his family navigated while living under the control of the Third Reich. Nate was five years old when the Nazis came to power, and for the next 12 years, he lived under the rule of Adolf Hitler. In 1939, hell touched down on Earth, and Nate lived that hell. It looked like starvation, disease, firing squads, gas chambers, and sexual abuse by fellow prisoners. This wasn't war. This was depravity that was mainstreamed, normalized, and systematized. The Nazis were purpose-built to exterminate the Jewish people, and they almost achieved that goal, having murdered one-third of the living Jews at that time. Nate and his family were forced from their home into a ghetto in 1939. And then on August 1st, 1943, Nate and his family were deported to the death camp Auschwitz. Over 1.1 million people, including Nate's mother and sister, were murdered in Auschwitz. As I mentioned in our conversation, Nate's book is excruciatingly hard to read, which begs the question, what was it like to live it? Partly out of fear of hearing the responses and partly out of respect for Nate, the questions I asked do not go in the direction of detailing the horrors the Nazis unleashed upon Nate and the millions of others who entered Nazi death camps. However, Nate's book does outline these horrors, and I think it is so important for you and me to fully grasp how Nate, for five straight years, lived in a world controlled by humans who at any moment could have taken his life without recourse. So I want to stress this point. At any moment during his time in the ghetto, Auschwitz, Fuhnteichen, Gross-Rosen, Flossenburg, Waldlager 5, Maldorf, which is a sub-camp of Dachau, a Nazi, because he had the urge, could have taken Nate's life. And that would have been it. Nate would have been no more. But thank God, Nate survived. And after being liberated by American soldiers in 1945, Nate and his father were designated as DPs or displaced persons, which resulted in living in Germany for the next three years next to people who denied their involvement and the legitimacy of their suffering. And even after arriving in Canada, as Nate recounted, few people were interested in our past, so we concluded that since no one listened, it was best kept, it was best to keep silent. Thankfully, this much, this much has changed. Nate is speaking and we are listening. We listen because we know it is the only path to understanding and ensuring never again is never again. And in Toronto, at the city's Holocaust Museum, Nate is the museum's virtual guide for today's students and for all those to come. There's so much wisdom packed into Nate's words, too much for me to outline, but thankfully you will soon hear for yourself. I will call out something he said though. When talking about remembering the past, Nate said, 
quote, the past is a stepping stone to a better life. If Nate, given his past, is able to turn that into a positive future, then clearly no one is incapable of doing the same. As you will hear while in Auschwitz, Nate asked his father what they would do if they were marched into the gas chambers. Nate's father responded, we will march with our heads held high in defiance, and we will say the first line of the Shema over and over again. This episode concludes with Nate saying the Shema and me joining in. I have muted my voice, so each one of you will be able to say the Shema with him. Thank God Nate's final Shema was not lost into the darkness of Auschwitz. Instead, Nate has continued to say Shema's deep into his 90s, and they will be here. His Shema will be here for eternity for all those seeking Nate's courage. May we in God never forget Nate, his words, and the wisdom and das he has chosen to gift all of us. I think that's a great place to start our conversation, remembering. How can you not? Your memory is inherent in your brain. And it's like a computer. It's in there. And, uh, you know, it pops up without your uh, prompting. But the, the, to recall it on which what I'm doing, I'm recalling it purposely because I do feel that what I remember is a communal memory, a memory of that has to, that belongs to the world because it involves six million people, one and a half million children. And that those people cannot be forgotten because in the words of Elie Wiesel, if you forget them, you're committing another offense. One of those people that passed was your was your sister my sister Tell my me. mother my, my grandparents my uncles my aunts or my cousins uh, of uh, you know the big family that we had only uh, three other cousins survived with me and my father and uh, you know the the loss is so horrendous that you know i mean i subsequently lost a daughter and that was very, very devastating to me. And it uh, was more devastating because of what I have, who I have lost before and what I suffered. And to survive everything and to lose a daughter in my old age before I go was horrendous. But then you consider that. And uh, I think you have family, man. You have children. So well, how you know how you would feel if one of you lost one of your children? Well, just multiply it by hundreds of times. Multiply, you know, your immediate, your sister and your mother and uh, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, the world. It's, you know, a world of six million people. Uh, the, the pain, the trauma is, is uh, beyond the description. 
and it's almost beyond in human endurance. And there are many ways that people get over the trauma. I don't think some people do, but people handle the trauma in different ways. And some of them is by shutting out the memory, not talking about it as if it was in another world and you're not allowing the memory to come forward. A lot of Holocaust survivors have done that. They, even, they haven't even told their children the, at least the smallest uh, involvement of what happened. And I go on the March of the Living, which is an excursion of uh, thousands of people. Every year we have anywhere between 12 to 20,000 people come to Auschwitz-Birkenau and we march from Auschwitz to Birkenau, a, a three or four kilometer walk. And uh, we call it the March of the Living. And so I speak to the young people. And uh, uh, my message is that you should go speak to your grandparents. That the, Because your parents, I tell them, your parents cannot speak about the Holocaust with your parents. It is too traumatic. But if you go and you talk to your grandparents, and you start slowly and you say, where were you born? Did you have any siblings? Or what was your childhood like? Even better, start with their childhood life. You know, just slight, slowly start in a, at a time where they remember with a joy, the joyous time in their life and start there and start going slowly. And then what happened? And then what happened? And you'll get the story. There will be, and maybe some of the trauma may come out, they may break down, but you will get the story, which your parents could not. And a lot of grandchildren have done that, and they've recorded stories, including my granddaughter, who did that, and recorded my story in a conversational manner, and which she now is that uh, you're displaying to schools. She's got a program that is uh, about uh, 50 minutes, 45 minutes, and she sometimes invites me into the class to uh, say hello to the kids, just to put a face to the, uh, or the present face, because she's reported, recorded it about 10 years ago. So that's uh, that's the way it is. So that's, that's memory, I'm talking about memory. I appreciate that approach and I'm appreciative that you're taking the time to speak with us on Search for DOS. One of the goals of this podcast is to unlock personal journeys and share wisdom. I, I'd like to go to the period of time where you're interacting with your friends in the town you grew up in and think about some of the wisdom you accumulated from from the streets in your hometown. I listened to the USC Shoah interview you did now almost 40 years ago, and you talked about how many of your friends were not Jewish. What, what were some of those relationships like, and what was some of the smarts you picked up on the streets? Uh, well, I was I was a street kid because I was living in a neighborhood where I was the only Jewish child, 
and uh, all my uh, friends were uh, non uh, were not Jewish, and they were uh, children of miners, and uh, their interaction with their parents was not very. Uh, I think not very evident, very meaningful, maybe, or maybe some of it was loving, some of it was not, and but uh, they were street kids, and so I became a street kid to fend for myself among uh, people who were sometimes hostile to me, and uh, sometimes you have to put up a, a meek appearance, and sometimes you have to stand up to them. So it's a very interesting uh, concept as to when, when do you submit and when do you stand up, and uh, you know sometimes when do you run away. You know, so all of these things. Uh, so I, I learned that uh, if I was uh, accosted, uh, I would stand up in front of a, an apartment building and start shouting "Ma" as if I lived there. So, you know, that discouraged them from coming after me or uh, they attacked me in a park and I ran away and I attached myself to a woman walking uh, through the park as if she was with me or I was with her. And, you know, you learn a technique where how to avoid confrontation and uh, when to run. And um, I don't know, but that. That's not what really uh, helped me uh, survive the camps. The mechanism that I need, that I used to survive the camp is to make the most of the situation in which you found yourself, not to think about how it was or hoping as to how it's going to be, but what is the situation that you find yourself in now? What make what can you make use of the, where you are, uh, you know, and it, the minute little things, whether you go here or there, uh, figure out, try to figure out that anyways, what the situation is, where is the advantageous place to be, what line, what lineup should do, should you stand in? Sometimes you, some, some people mis, misjudged and went to the wrong line had when they had to go to a line they misjudged which line they should go to and they were lost uh, you know I I made use of I made use of every opportunity that uh, that arose uh, you know when I was working uh, with my tools uh, with the electrician's tools I made use of that uh, you know when I could I was working for the couple, so I was up many hours after everybody else went to sleep. So during the day, I was very tired. So I used to pay off one of my prisoner fellow fellow prisoners to to stay watch when I hid in a in a, in a tunnel and um, went to sleep, <laughs> or I slept in a inside a desk. And you know, you uh, you try to use as, and you know, I used my the fact that I was looked like a kid. I was 15 years old, but I looked like 12. Uh, I went to see the civilians and uh, played on their 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 good um, their goodwill to get some soup or bread, whatever they could share, and. You know, they 
we we discovered that you know I, I i was in their view and they would go ahead and take some bread and throw it into the garbage and then i would go and retrieve it from the garbage they did not do anything wrong i did it. i was not allowed to do that but i did it at my own risk not at their risk so that's the way we protected each other what, what, what was your father's approach to being a father during such a extraordinary time? You know, uh, in camp, you, you needed somebody to be at your back. And so if you were by yourself, you adopted somebody that was from your town or knew him before the war, and they became camp brothers. Well, I had a built-in camp brother, and it was my father. And so we did not behave like son and father. We behaved like friends. And that relationship grew as we proceeded through the years. And because when I was a child, I my relationship with my father was not very good. I was afraid of him, and I, I could never please him. And I, the harder I tried, the harder I failed. And for some reason, I was nervous when I did something in his presence. So I always screwed up. And of course, he uh, expressed his displeasure with me, the fact that I failed. So I felt that he didn't love me. And when he, on the first occasion when we got to camp and he saved my life, we became, you know, I became aware of the fact that he does love me. Maybe he just tried to punish me because he wanted me to become better as to what I was because I did, you know, behave, misbehave many times. And um, so we became more like brothers than a father's son situation, which was very interesting because in 1948, when he when we came to Canada and he got married, and he tried to assume a paternal role. I rebelled against him. And we had a confrontation that almost uh, became uh, a fistfight. <laughs> but uh, that, that, uh, on, that only occurred once. He, he realized that uh, he cannot treat me as a child anymore. Did you two have different approaches to remembering the experience? I don't think so. No, but still, he 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 was a storyteller, and uh, he told the story in my presence and many times without me. And when he went, he told the story in my presence. I listened, and I became his audience. It's only after he died in 1972 that I started talking. I felt that the burden of remembering and of telling the story fell on me. So a lot of the stories that I have, which uh, were beyond me, uh, out of my hearing sphere or seeing sphere, it became his, I became the teller of his story. And uh, that's, I wrote a book called The Weight of Freedom, where I described and, you know, 
400 pages, but uh, they took it down to 240. <coughs> My experiences, and even then, there was very selective experiences because, you know, you go through uh, six years of uh, 1939 to 1945, six years of ghetto and uh, deprivation and... Uh, uh, humiliation and finally uh, murder and uh, incarceration and murder of my family. How do you describe it? And you know, I mean, the, the Shah Foundation and the recording is, I think, between four hours. And uh, I have another one which was done in Toronto, which took six hours. And uh, depending on the interviewer and questions that they ask. And uh, so, yes, that is the memory carrying of the Mary became my goal in life and my obligation that I took on for myself to remember those who either did not live to tell the story or those who could not tell the story. Did you, do you, you and your father have an opportunity to mourn the loss of your mother and your sister? No, no. That opportunity does not, did not come together. Uh, you know, how do you mourn somebody that's left that, that you lost two years or two, you know, two years later, uh, two years ago? Um, we went to the synagogue and we prayed together and we say Kaddish together. But uh, we, uh, not that I remember, we never talked about commemoration or doing something in their honor. That did not come up, no. I mean, when my children were born. Uh, my, uh, I, I talked to him, and uh, my first, my first daughter was born. was named after my mother, and my second daughter, who I we lost subsequently, was named after my sister. And his mother, and my father's mother. Uh, David Leipziger, who was uh, his only surviving brother in Canada. Who brought us to Canada did recall his mother and whenever my daughter came into uh, with me to see him he used to call my child his mamela which means small mother mamela you're my mamela because she carried his mother's name and um, so there's many ways of remembering, uh, many acts that we do to remember. When you think back on your early childhood, you spoke three languages, you had relationships with people who were not Jewish. What do you see as, as formative, as you know, really forming before the war happened, like what really shaped you as who you are today? 
what are the most formative um, experiences? I, I don't, it's very difficult to say that because I think that I am not a mirror image of who I was as a child. I am more of an accumulation of all the experiences of my life. So, you know, my life is, is an accumulation of history, of experiences since then, how I lived, who I lived with, and uh, my attitude to Jews, my attitude to religion, my attitude to non-Jewish partners that I had after I went into business. I had two partners. One was a Lithuanian Catholic. The other one was a Polish Catholic. People said, how can you be partners with them? They were our enemies. I said, maybe their parents were our enemies, but these guys are not my enemies. They're my friends. They're my partners. So we work together and we exchange ideas and we are understanding. And I said, that's the only way you can further your relationship in this world and you can prevent to happen to for for what to happen again. I said, the world is you know we all created in the image of god i believe that and um if there is god which is another story uh but um i believe that mutual acceptance is the way to go not tolerance i feel that tolerance is a discriminatory word it's a it starts out with discrimination, saying you're different than me and I'll tolerate you the way you are. And that's wrong. I said, you have to accept them the way they are without changing them or expecting them to act like you do. It just You have to tolerate and you have to mutually accept each other, whether they're your, your Jewish co-patriots or whether they're Christian or Muslim. Uh, you know, uh, people that you work with or meet with. Mutual acceptance is our salvation. So the you've done so much to tell your story and to ensure that we remember and we never forget. Looking back on those interviews, be it the one you did with USC Shoah or just informal conversations like you might have had when you were retracing your steps with your family. Have there been questions that you've found very challenging to answer, be it from a recollection standpoint or from an emotional standpoint? Are there any questions that pop into mind that you have found especially challenging? All the questions of life can be challenging. Every time you make a decision, you you are challenged. You are challenged, and you respond to the challenge, because a decision that is is part is a challenge. I think, and um, I think that my greatest problem to to this day is, I you know want to believe in religion. I want to believe in God. But I have great difficulties of uh, doing that, accepting God unconditionally. 
in other words, uh, uh, accepting what happened as part of uh, the will of God. Uh, it says that God teaches the Jews through history, with history, through history. Well, it's a, it's a very difficult lesson uh, that we were taught by the uh, loss of one-third of our nation, our religious uh, co-religionists, our ethnic identity. And um, I go to synagogue and I pray. I, my, the, the memory of my mother, my sister, and my grandparents when I pray about them, I think about them. I think about them as souls that are alive, that are with me. I mean, I realize that that is finite. That after my memory is gone, or I am gone, the memory dies with me. Um, trying to, uh, by writing it down, by talking to my children, by talking to others, I'm trying to extend the memory. And we just created a very interactive museum where I go into side and, and I go inside and I wave a hand, and my image comes up. And uh, it tells the story with me standing right beside it. It's a live image. And I recognize that that is, that I am. Post, I'm seeing what will be posthumously. I already see something that's happening after I'm gone. It's both unnerving <laughs> at the same time as it is hopeful. Uh, to see, I guess, man is the only creature that can imagine what happens after life. Uh, so that's we do. We imagine, and everybody is. Uh, I think everybody is on their own. Everybody has to struggle and answer the questions that are possibly unanswerable, and that's the struggle that becomes more prevalent as you approach your end, your your death. Because I know it's uh, life is finite. It's not like the world, which is infinite, uh, and uh, we are finite. So our ideas, because of our finality, we are, are, are finite as well. But uh, we like to think about, we like to extend it into infinity and think about the vastness of the universe and the infinity of time and infinity of space. Very important, very difficult concept. And when you think about that, you realize how small and how minute the time that we are here is. That puts you into place. That, you know, if you think you are very important, that puts you back into place, into reality of the world of where you are. And if you can, as a human being, contribute something to the consciousness of the world, to the to to make other people 
think in a different way or think make them think in a positive way so that they react humanly to each other rather than as uh, members of a jungle and then i think we will succeed some tranquility and became become uh, loving instead of warring people instead of rewarding people you know we are going through a very tough time right now and we're seeing the war uh, between the russia and ukraine brings back memories of of my war my war my war being the second world war there was war since and uh, and i you know we suffered through vietnam and north korean war vietnam was especially very horrible war as everybody as every war is and uh, you know uh, we were singled out for destruction by a ruler who I think attained his power by making us scapegoats. I think he united his people in the quest of demolishing the Jewish people. I think he unified. He very early in his career, I think I observed my own personal observation that whenever he talked about destruction of the Jews, he has a positive response from the people by saying, yeah, yeah, let's go, let's do that. And he, this fed him again. And it was like a snowballing effect. So he couldn't help himself anymore. And he caused the final destruction. I'm in the midst of reading your book. I'm 78 pages in right now. And, um, and I just so appreciative that you took the time to write it. How long was that process to write the book? Two years. Of course. Yeah. I usually answer the question that it took me 70 years to write the book. Were there parts of the writing process you found especially difficult? I was sexually abused in the camps. And I could leave it out very easily and nothing would change. Nothing would, the story would not change. And I had to make the decision. Uh, I review, I really, I, the first time I talked to in Auschwitz when my grandchildren were there was when my youngest grandchild was on the trip. He was 16 by then. And I thought that at that point, it would be okay to say that I was sexually abused. Uh, it, uh, the situation in, in life, when the indigenous, when, you know, when the sports people start coming out and talking about being abused by their coaches and nothing happened to them. 
And uh, then the indigenous came out and talked about their abuses. And nothing happened to them. So I said, I could, I can tell, talk about it, and nothing will happen to me. I was ashamed. I thought the public would judge it badly against me uh, and would not understand. So I withheld it. But then I decided that if I'm going to write the book, it's going to be 100% uh, right on. And I will divulge every all my secrets, which you will find when you read. There's more, but at any rate, so that's that was the most difficult part to to write about. So I read the in the preface. I saw that it was written by Debor Dork, who, when I read that name, I was completely shocked because I know that name and I met her because my mother worked at Clark University with her. And so the fact that she mentioned that element of your story and how essentially not up until your recount had anyone come forward and um, explain that situation as, as someone who um, was part of it, survived it. And I mean, it was, is really powerful that it's clear that you, you've decided to show, show reality as it was in, in that moment. Um, I mean, the strength, the strength that, that it takes to do that. And then by transitive property, the strength that, you know, I felt in that moment, knowing that you decided to do that. To, to tell that is immense. And I, you know, I think that there's so many important elements of your decision to recount the show up. I think one of them is that you, you courage, sure, it can't be taught, but it can certainly be, um, I think one can be inspired to try to be courageous. And I think by seeing someone else doing that, which you've done in the entirety of your decision to uh, tell your story is, is immense. And like, from, from, from my standpoint, I think that's one of the most important elements of the, of the retelling is showing what courage looks like. Well, when I read other survivors stories from before the war, they all painted a very rosy picture of their families. It was just the best, and there was no strife. There was no fighting. There was no uh, difficulties in their life, in their whole pre-war life. I felt that there was that was there was some some they were hiding something. So when I wrote about my family life, which you already went through, I wrote about our awards and our pimples and our. Uh, dishonesty and all of the things that uh, make life what it is, and um, you can't you can't hide it. If you're going to write your memoirs, you have to be truthful, and you have to write about the moments that hurt. And when my parents uh, fought, of course it hurt. And if I'm not going to write about it, what's the point of me writing anything? 
So that's why uh, I have divulged everything that went before the war, uh, how my parents fought, how, you know, there was infidelity, how, you know, all of that, all of the things that uh, uh, was uh, difficult to write about. Uh, still didn't write everything because uh, there are members of my family that were alive and I didn't want to hurt them by writing about their parents in a certain way. So I it didn't add it didn't add to the story because it only affected an interaction between uh, my parents or my mother or my father with with their siblings and stuff so that was not important. So uh, I didn't do it. I only wrote what affected me. And even after the war, I did not write about my wonderful career that I had as a consulting engineer, working on many excellent projects in Canada of uh, important uh, nature. Like the, the, the latest one was the Sault Ste. Marie General Hospital. It used the uh, latest, up-to-date, latest technology, uh, computer technology and uh, cabling and uh, fiber optics. Uh, that was, but I didn't write about that because it was not affected by my previous experiences. I only wrote about what happened to me and my family that affected, that was affected by my experience in the Shoah. If the reason why I use Shoah rather than Holocaust because I have difficulty getting it out of my throat. I prefer to use the word Shoah and uh, because it then is specific. It does not involve any other genocides. It just talks about that because there's a lot of people that spot, speak about the Holocaust or at least events that happened during the time of the Holocaust were not part of the Holocaust. The only part that was part of the Holocaust is the Roma and Sinti people who were persecuted the same way as we were, and they were destined to die because of who they were. Not of what they believed, but who they were, who they were born to. The same thing with the Jews. We did not go to our death because of our beliefs, but because who we were born to. In other words, I could change my religion to any religion in the world, it did not matter. I was still destined to be murdered by the fact that I was born to a Jewish mother. I'm interested to know, you talk a lot about hate and how that's something that you've, you've avoided um, in your, in your life. What you talk about hate a bit and why you think that is something that is naturally occurring in the human mind? That if I hate somebody, that person is not affected. He goes around being who he is without any effect. So the only thing affects me, my hate, is I'm bitter. That hate is it turns against me. I it, My 
characters affected by the hate that I hold in my, my in myself. So I said, you know, hey, you know, I, I heard this, and I think you, you've, uh, uh, somebody uh, I told me that, or I heard it, I don't remember when. They said this hate is like taking poison and hoping that the pe person that, that you hate is going to die. Uh, I recognized that many, many years ago, and I could never vocalize it till I came to, uh, uh, in, on the March of the Living, who were in uh, um, but the pogrom after the war occurred after the pogrom, Celts. We were in Celts, and there were a number of things occurred. First, during the war in Celts, the Nazis gathered the children of the town. They took them to the cemetery and they murdered them there. And there's a mass grave of the children. And so Celts, as a town, had a terrible situation happening to them. And then they experienced what everybody else experienced. They were put in a ghetto, they were sent to death camps, to put into concentration camps, and some people survived. About 200 people arrived back in Celts after the war. About 80 of them didn't have where to go because their homes were occupied by Polish Christians that were given or taken or they took themselves or they were allocated by the Nazi or the Polish government or I don't know by who, but the residence was occupied. So they had nowhere to live. But there was a building, a Jewish community building. So they congregated in that building. And a woman whose child was missing, and the child came back, told the woman that the child was kept in the cellar of that building by Jews, and that he escaped. The woman took her to the street, and there was a pogrom saying that the Jews tried to murder a Christian child. Totally unrelated, un, totally lie, because there was no debasement in the, uh, in the building. But the child actually confessed that he went to his uncle's farm to pick apples or something. There was a trial. And this came out, I'm telling you beforehand. But the result of the fact that the child, what the child told his mother, people from the adjoining area attacked the building and murdered 42 people by clubbing them to death. Murdered them with their own hands. Some were shot. 
and uh, that became the Kelsey program and uh, that is a a lie as to how how this occurred why why this occurred it's a total lie and uh, but the fact was that the people on the street attacked them and there were some militia polish militia that participated and i think they're the ones that shot some individuals and um that was that was the uh, the story of the Celts, and so I'm talking about it, and and a, and a student comes to me and he says, "Don't you hate these people?" Referring to the Poles. Uh, don't you hate these people? And I say, no, I don't hate them because hatred would destroy me, not them. I said I hold them responsible. I don't. I, I feel that they're criminals, but hate is an internal thing which I do not want to feel. I rather feel an understanding, anger. That's okay. It's good to feel anger because anger drives you to action to do something positive. Whereas hatred is just a negative type of a emotion that you internalize. And it's only in your mind. The hatred is only in your mind. And it destroys your mind. It doesn't affect anybody else. It may affect your actions. But it does not solve any problems. I mean, if you... I, I said, hatred does not solve the problem. Bringing the people to justice does. So... And they say, well, don't you hate all Germans or all Poles? I said, no. And, and a lot of people disagree with me. And they said, oh, well, you know, they, uh, you should hate them for the second and third and fourth generation. I said, no, I don't hate them. I think that I'm not responsible for the crimes my father did or did not do. Uh, and I understand the child of... Frank, the, the, the governor of the uh, of uh, Poland, with the Nazi, or understand when uh, they went and they murdered people that that was done by the parents, it wasn't done by the children. How can you accuse the children of the murder that their parents committed? So, uh, you mentioned how after the after the war was over, you were still in Germany, and that you had interactions with Germans. Could you talk a bit more about those interactions? And I have to talk about three people, three individuals. The first individual that I'm going to talk about is who was in the armed forces, in the Air Force. And he was an educated man. He was going to university at the time I met him. He was studying history and... Uh, philosophy and he said to me we are not unique we hated the Jews uh, just like everybody else hated the Jews even the Americans hate the Jews Hitler read that was the first time that I understood what 
I didn't know about Henry Ford. And I didn't know whether he was telling me the truth or not. But he said, Henry Ford, who I knew that was the inventor of the car in the United States, he says he was an anti-Semite and he wrote anti-Semitic uh, stories that Hitler took and reproduced. That Hitler learned from the American anti-Semite. And he said, yeah, we, you know, we were wrong. We were wrong. We were, were wrong. He identified himself as German, being in the armed forces. Says, we were wrong, but we followed, the people followed blindly a leader who we believed had the truth. That was his explanation. He says, now he says, I feel we were wrong. You know, um, that's it. No question about it. We were wrong, person. He did not apologize for what the Germans do, did, but he says we were wrong, which is fine. I accept that. Then I spoke to somebody who was a refugee from the eastern part of Germany that was occupied by the Soviet Union. And they were running in front of the forces of the, the occupation, the Russian occupation. And she told me that uh, her mother or her uh, other, uh, the many women, as the, as the American, as the Soviets advanced, what they did, the first thing they did, then they ca captured the women, they raped them. And he says, she said, the German army never raped Jewish women. And I, I had to say, yes, that was that's true. He says, and look what they did to us. They bombed our cities. They destroyed Germany. They We have to relocate. We have to live in one room now. We lost our home, our apartment, our house. We lost everything and we had to run. We are the victims. You know, I mean, this was war. People died. I said, no, we did not die as a cause of war. We did not run, die because we were running from an occupation force. We were a peaceful people in an occupied territory. We were not a danger to anybody. We were murdered because Hitler felt that he wanted, and, and people who believed in Hitler believed that the only way to solve the problem of German purity was to murder all people who were not German, which included or Germanic or Aryan, which included the Jews and the Sinti and other people who he didn't have hold of, so he couldn't deal with them. But those people he had hold of, he murdered for no other reason than the fact that we were born. I said, that's different than starting a war and being a victim of that action. I said, you are a victim, not because the Allies attacked you and what the Allies are doing, but because of what Hitler did to you by attacking other nations. So if you're going to blame anybody, 
you got to blame yourself and you got to take responsibility for what happened when you voted for Hitler or when you were standing there on the street with your arms stretched out and saying and yelling, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler, we do anything, you are our leader, we will do, follow you to our death. And you did. And the Allies, whether it's the Soviets or the Americans, for what's happening to you. Your cities were bombed because you bombed in a British city that was totally non-strategic. You completely destroyed Coventry in 1940. I said, when the English had the, the, the ability to destroy your city, they chose uh, Dresden and they destroyed Dresden. So, you know, it's a quid pro quo. So don't, don't ask, uh, don't, don't, don't blame others for you being victimized. Oh, you're full of shit. Oh, you, 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 you don't know what you're talking about. That was the end of the conversation. So, so I would realistically, really, obviously we do not, did not have a conversation of uh, minding of mine. And there, I'm sure there are millions of people that believe that. And then I spoke to the kids who were my age, 17 years old, post high school, going about the university. They were happy-go-lucky people. They were affected by the fact that there was rations after the war, that there were Americans on the street, that there were, that the, that there was uh, no uh, German police, that there was policeman on the street was an American soldier. This was right after the war, before they uh, reestablished the, the civil service uh, of the German people. So they felt completely as innocent bystanders. They did not know what their parents did or didn't do. They didn't judge their parents for being Nazis. They uh, they said, well, it, you know, most people joined the Nazi party. But the thing was that even so you didn't join the Nazi party, they still acted and agreed with what was happening in the world that the Nazis were doing, the fact that they were attacking Poland because they needed Lebensraum and they attacked the Soviet Union because they, they felt that uh, they hated communism. They were unaffected by it. They went ahead. They lived their lives. They accepted me, uh, you know, as a as a as a to as a youth. I didn't look any different. I spoke perfect German. So you know, I had no difficulties being their friends. I mean, down deep, it bothered me, but you know, I could function. I could go and play tennis with them. I could go on bicycle with them. I could go and see opera with them uh, or, you know, uh, do business with them, like black market business. And so that that's that's the three different worlds. How, how do you implement justice in a world where you've got people who have just completely different narratives? I'm thinking of that, the, the woman you described who felt like it was complete bullshit, the narrative that, or 
front narrative the the reality that you you painted people believe what is convenient for them to believe they are uh, an acting from that they're not educated they're not they don't they, they don't they haven't been uh, they haven't confronted the reality of the situation. They don't. They only see the things that, the what is now. They see that the Palestinian people are in uh, uh, living in very congested a country, part of the country which is called Gaza, and they have the freedom to do whatever they do, but they concentrate on. Uh, building missiles uh, to attack the Jews. They do not want to accept Israel as a reality. They think that Israel should not exist. I don't think that you can convince these people unless, uh, you know, that, that, they're, that they're wrong. That's what the, the reality is on ground is what you see. And they believe they don't know how it came about. They don't know or do not want to know that the condition of perpetual uh, refugee ship originated with the leaders of the original five nation that attacked Israel in 1948. That they prohibited from other nations to accept people who left the area of what was designated as Palestine and accept them as, uh, as members of their own community. They had to keep them as refugees, whether they went to Kuwait or uh, Iran or to Iraq uh, or Lebanon or Jordan. Jordan is different, even Jordan. They had to remain as Palestinian refugees. I mean, the King Hussein of uh, uh, Jordan expelled 10,000 Palestinians to uh, Lebanon because he considered them to be an army against the state. And that date was November. November 16th, and this is where the term, the, uh, the uh, hmm. groups called, called the Uprising of November consider themselves as being a, a terrorist group which started against the Jordanians because they expelled those people to, uh, to uh, Jordan, I mean to uh, Lebanon. And what happened in Lebanon, uh, they had, they were not accepted. They kept in refugees, the refugee camps, and the refugee camps continued on to today. So on the idea, because their leaders promised them that they would go back and get their homes back after they threw the Jews into the, into the sea. And so today talking about today how do you solve the problems the problems is not solvable because the palestinian leaders do not want to 
change the life that they have by creating a state of pastime. So they don't want to negotiate. The following part of our conversation was recorded on October 23rd, which means Nate and I had the opportunity to discuss 10-7 in the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict. Nate's viewpoint is one that we desperately need to add to our nation's discourse, especially on college campuses. It is not uncommon to hear a student refer to Israel's actions as genocidal. If a student at Yale or any other leading U.S. university, for that matter, uses the same word to describe Israel's actions to that of the Nazis, then our institutions of higher education have failed our nation. I urge all of you to engage your alma maters to ensure that this failed equivalence is being vehemently challenged. Now, back to Nate. And more tragic is that the, the world does not understand what just happened. If the whole world was listening, what would you say just happened? That we must be cognizant of the reason for the war against Hamas terrorist organization. We must realize that this represents an existential threat to the Jewish people generally and to Israel particularly. We have to understand that this is a repeat of 1938 of the huge pogrom against the people in Germany, which also happened in other countries such as Austria and uh, other nationalist groups such as the Endetsia, uh, uh, E-N-D, in uh, Poland took uh, notice of it and also started to attack Jews in Poland on the streets, in stores, smashing windows, and uh, not as severe as it was in Germany, but it uh, reflected uh, throughout the world. And the world at that time did not respond. And the result was that 6 million people, Jews, 6 million Jews died. Today, the same thing happened. The only thing is that instead of being unable to respond, we have Israel that is capable of protecting the state of Israel and the 8 million Jews that find themselves in Israel. That's a huge difference. But the world must support this event, this uh, war, because it is against an organization that declared not only the destruction of the, is the state of Israel, but the murder of all the Jews, first in Israel, in the Middle East, and then throughout the world.
So this organization is no different than the Nazi as this organization has an ideology which is similar to that of Nazis. And this did not occur in a vacuum. We must remember that in 1938, when the Mufti of Jerusalem, the uh, Arab leader, went to, to uh, Berlin and met with Hitler, they talked about the destruction of the Jewish people, not only in Europe, but also in the Arab lands. And he created the, as far as I understand, and as far as I remember, he created the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood, which is Hamas. So it goes, the two events are tied together through the ideology that advocates the destruction of the Jewish people worldwide. And we must respond to it accordingly and make every effort to protect the Jews in Israel as well as everywhere else and must allow Israel to destroy Hamas and unfortunately the Palestinian people who are pawns in Hamas's hand will suffer because Hamas is exposing them and asking them to be shahids, martyrs for that cause. And that cause is destruction of the Jews. And the world must wake up and recognize what Hamas is standing for. I have a close friend of mine who we've, we, we talk about everything and, and we, we have different, uh, different views on, on some things, but on the whole, we're, we're, we're pretty similar in how we view the world. And over the past few weeks, we've been having some conversations on um, the war and what Hamas did to Israel and now what the IDF strategy. And he's not Jewish. And the challenge I have with the conversation with him is that he, he says what Israel is doing to the Palestinians is genocide. And I, uh, those, that's an impossible word for me to uh, hear and not, not be um, motivated to, to, to take, uh, take action. If a genocide is being committed, then clearly um, action needs to be taken. Um, but I feel like he's improperly utilizing the word. Um, if he was joining us for a conversation and he said, you know, Israel is committing a genocide, what would be your response to him? Categorically and absolutely no. The Israelis and the Jewish people are horrified with loss of life on both sides, especially civilians that are not involved in the process of trying to create genocide on the Jewish people. Now, 
we're talking about Palestine and we're talking about the Palestinian people. Right now, the slogan is free Palestine from river to sea, which means the elimination of Israel. Palestine, Palestinian leadership throughout the last 70 years had many opportunities to enter uh, into a state and to create a two-state solution. Every time they rejected. The last time with the, with the accord with it, uh, uh, with the, uh, when uh, they had the accord in the United States and they shook hands, Rabin and uh, Arafat, and when Arafat came back to uh, to uh, Palestine, to the Palestinian occupied territory, he said, we cannot make peace. We must win it by war. So there was total rejection of a two-state solution by a Palestinian leader. So the Palestinians are captive prisoners by the Palestinian leadership. The Palestinian leadership have little to gain by creating a state. Right now, the world is supporting them with a huge amount of money. The leaders are lining their pockets with uh, cash received from the United States and all other countries in the world. They're living a wonderful life. They don't give a damn, excuse the expression, for the Palestinian people. They only think about themselves. Right now, they do not have to uh, face an, a competition in an election. They just rule by, by force. Both Gaza and the Palestinian leadership have not had election for the last 20 years. Or Gaza has for the last uh, 19, uh, 1905. So almost 20 years. I mean, 2005, so almost 20 years. And that's, that's the reality of the situation. Israel has done everything. And uh, uh, Rabin was assassinated because he wanted to make peace. But he was assassinated by a radical person in Israel. Doesn't mean that we don't have radicals in uh, Israel that want to have uh, all of uh, Palestine or in Israel, one country, but those are a minority. The majority of people in Israel, according to the last statistics, want a separation between the two nations. Now, the problem, there's the problems. Israel allows Palestinians to, le to live in Israel as free citizens. Anytime that we that the Palestinians talked about statehood, they actually have in their uh, charter that no Jew will live in the Palestinian free state. That is a very troubling scenario because it indicates that the anti-Semitism and the hatred continues and that they will then have the ability to arm themselves and only wait till they're strong enough 
to attack Israel from three sides. Oh, how, what, what has it been like for you to watch these events unfold? What, what emotions, what feelings have you had? Terrible. My heart aches and I couldn't look at the images that we received from Hamas, what they did to children, what they did to elder people, what they did to women. Those images, I don't even want to repeat what they, what the, 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 the brutality that they perpetrated on those people was so horrible and was so reminiscent of the Nazi, uh, what was happening. And it was, it was very terrible. Uh, my, the healed wounds that I had by being a survivor, by being 15 years old, standing in Auschwitz, looking at the chimneys, spewing the red flames and ashes to the sky, which were a result of my family's bodies being burned, who only moments earlier were murdered by gassing. My mother and my sister and my whole family, my brothers, my father's four siblings, four siblings were murdered in, and their wives and their, and their, I'm sorry, and their spouses and their children were murdered. All of this came back. Depression set in. Inability to cope with life set in. I was only hope, happy that my wife was able to shock me out of my terrible situation, out of my pain. But the pain remains. It's tragic. And, you know, it's very important to know that the world today is contributing to the propaganda of genocide of the Jews. And it reminds me of the propaganda that was created by Nazi Germany. And the world did not object. The world did not object to the propaganda by the Nazis. They did not respond. And the world today, if anything, is supporting the Hamas propaganda against the Jews and is turning a blind eye towards it. That is tragic. We live in a very difficult time, which will have an imprint on our young people for at least one or two generations. Hmm. Um, I imagine that the event that came right before this in your own country, Canada, where the, where your, your seat of government honored a former Nazi, the SS soldier, um, had somewhat of a similar impact. Is that, is that something that you tracked and what was your reaction when you saw it? It was a ter terrible mistake. It was a terrible mistake. 
But the mistake did not happen in isolation. After the war, 1945, the British government asked the Canadian government to accept, I think was 500 or 1,000 ex-Nazis, uh, Ukrainians that belonged to the Galicia detachment, which was known to have committed genocide. They came to Canada. They lived as free individuals. They lived as if nothing happened. They had blood on their hand. And it was only, uh, it only took time for, for it to come out that they, these people were here. They were living in peace. They were living in, uh, you know, in, with the knowledge of what they did and that they got away with murder. That was what happened. And uh, the Jewish community could not do anything about it because they were legally admitted to Canada. And what happened only brought forth the reality of what really happened. And it was sort of an expose of the situation that happened in 1945 when those uh, members of the Einsatzgruppen were admitted to Canada. Had you met one of these individuals um, throughout your time living in Canada prior to this announcement? No, I have not. I have not. I have not. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had uh, in my business, I had a partner who was a Lithuanian Catholic and a Polish Catholic. And uh, the three of us got along fine. We were in business for almost 40 years together. And we had an understanding. We had family events that uh, we celebrated uh, with each other. And there was no, no problem. So the, my, uh, my answer to this time of hatred is that we have to have mutual acceptance. This is what we had, what I had with my partners. We had mutual acceptance. They did not want to convert me to Catholicism, nor did I influence them to uh, tell them how wonderful Judaism is. So I felt that, but I respected their right to be who they are and believe in what they believe and to practice their religion the way they were to the fullest extent. And I know that they supported me and my attitudes toward the, my religion, towards my people, and we lived in peace together. So this is how I developed my motto of uh, mutual acceptance is the solution to live in a diverse world where people are now interspersed of different, different people of, are interspersed with um, different backgrounds and different religions. And we can live all together as we live in Canada with the exception of outbursts of radical elements. But normally we can live together peacefully and I think so can the world. And I think that the 
Israelis and Palestinians have left to their own uh, uh, things would uh, would be able to work out a situation with the Palestinians. The Palestinians are just like the Jews of Israel. They want to live in peace. They want to have they want to have their children go to school and safety. They want to have a job. They want to have social services and hospitalization. They want to be able to free to travel and go out and come back. That's that's what anybody wants. And that is attainable. It does not depend on how much territory one has and how much one territory needs. You know, the territorial compromises can be made if both sides come to the table with a positive attitude and willingness to make compromises. I think Israel has demonstrated that on numerous occasions and was rebuffed by the counter, counterpoint Palestinians, the national leaders. It, uh, you know, someone, I'm 36 years old. I was born in 1987. You know the world that I grew up in. And it was, um, it was a peaceful world, at least for, for me growing up in the United States during that period of time. Um, grew up in a Jewish family, but most of my friends were not Jewish. Um, the amount of anti-Semitism that has reared its head since this, uh, these past two weeks now is hard to comprehend. And it's also something that I find very hard to discuss with friends of mine who are not Jewish. It's the first time where I felt a real distance with them. And it's something in your book that I, I noticed, I noticed you, 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 you had friends, you, you, you knew people who were not Jewish before the war. Um, and as you just outlined, you, you built uh, relationships, uh, built a whole business with people who weren't Jewish. Um, what have you found over the years in terms of communicating to people who are not Jewish, the, the fear that, Jewish people have the the the, the life the, the living hell that you went through. What have you found is resonates, and what have you found is you know it doesn't land, and it's just not worth trying. It's 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 something that someone who's not Jewish will never understand. I don't believe that. I don't believe I don't believe that because it's not beyond the human understanding as to what we are suffering. As you said, as I told you, in my, in, as maybe as you read it in my book, when uh, my wife Bernice and I decided to buy a house, we had to make a decision whether we want to live in Bathard Manor, which was mainly Jewish, and I consider it as part, almost like a ghetto, or whether I should move into another community where we would be a minority. And Bernice and I, we decided that our salvation was to use the goodwill and the understanding of our uh, non-Jewish people in Canada. We moved into Don Mills, into a, uh, a Jewish minority situation. My kids went to public school. 
they were proud to uh, uh, tell the classroom as to what our heritage was when it came to holidays. They were not at all discriminated against. They felt safe. And uh, this was many years before you were born, and it was a very safe climate. I, as a matter of fact, became a president of a local group called Civitan, which I was the only Jewish person in this group, and they elected me as their president, which showed the goodwill and understanding that Jews and non-Jews can get along and live together in peace. And uh, I went to door from door to door selling uh, Christmas cakes for Civitan to aid the what we used to call then the mentally retarded or uh, people, which is a term that is uh, not suitable to be used today, but that's when it was then. And uh, we lived in Don Mills for many, many years among non-Jewish uh, neighbors. We then uh, moved to uh, North York, uh, north of, uh, of uh, Finch, and we still live and continue to live in an environment which is a mixed environment. I live in, uh, in a condo where at least 60% uh, of the people in this condo are not Jewish. We live together, we greet each other, we understand, and this is, this, is, this is what I understand is the future of the world. As a minority group, it behooves us to uh, live a life that is acceptable to us and acceptable to our neighbors, and we hope that our neighbors will respond in, in turn of accepting us and uh, allowing us to live a quiet life together with them. Our children go to school without being harassed. Our children going to university without being discriminated against as it's happening today. So the world today, after 80 years that I stood in, front of the gas chambers in, in Auschwitz has changed and turned in such an extent that I don't recognize it. When I see the violence and the reaction that the students at the university had against the Jewish population, Jewish students, is absolutely abhorrent and I cannot understand it. And that is troubling, troubling and fearful, and I fear for our future because the university campus is supposed to be the ones that have understanding of history, that are not, that, under, that are intelligent, that can discern the difference between good and, and evil, and that they should attack the Jewish student because they are Jewish and then because they may support the Jewish state is absolutely horrendous. And what's more horrendous is the fact that the university administration is not stopping this type of horrendous uh, behavior of the non-Jewish students, especially the Palestinian students against the Jewish students. That is, that is totally unacceptable and horrendous.
and I, I don't understand how this is happening. My intellect is just not big enough to encompass it. I um, I wish I wish that you were able to go to the UN. I wish you were able to go to Yale's campus. I wish you were able to sit down and able to communicate exactly what transpires when war is fully initiated. You, you, you put it forth in the pages of your book. It's, it's so, it's so challenging to read. It's, it's challenging to read. I, which obviously begs the question, what would it be like to live? And I think there's such a, insane levels of naivete that define people across the world when it comes to what war is actually like, especially in the West, especially in my age group, because few have ever seen it. I, I don't know um, if there's a way to convey um, the, the hellish existence that that transpires once one is fully thrown into it. Um, thankfully, your your book helps um, helps get that across. But I guess another question to you is how 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 can someone like me? How can someone who is focused on that? understands that 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 there's no no limit to evil um if 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 it's completely unbounded if people are are or if leadership doesn't exist to prevent that how what's your advice to me what's your your advice to other people in my generation who um want uh peaceful existence to transpire and the jewish people to be safe what, what's your what's your advice don't give up. Don't give up. You must continue in your struggle to deliver the truth to this world. Remember, the Holocaust was not a result of a war. The Holocaust was in spite of the war. The war was practically with Germany has conquered all the lands in which they, they committed genocide. They were not at war anymore, and it was committed beyond war. So genocide is worse than war. And when, is, when Hamas attacked Israel and declared a war, they did not declare war to gain freedom or territory. They had freedom and they had their own territory. Nobody was claiming their land or claiming their territory. They did not represent the Palestinian people. The Palestinian people were represented by uh, Abbas and not by Hamas. And uh, they declared not only war, but genocide against the Jewish people, which is part of their declared charter and declared aim in life and their, their declared aim in existence to be able to murder all Jews in the Middle East and then the world. That is their declared ideology, part of their 
declaration of their religion, and that's horrendous. And the world must recognize that and must act according to this understanding that it has to stop, that we have to stop Hamas and we have to help the Palestinian people to overthrow Hamas. I, I hope that everyone who listens to this episode picks up your book. It is, like I said, one of the most challenging things I've ever done reading it. And the amount of courage that you you have to write it um, to ensure that everyone understood exactly what it was like and not selectively um, is, yeah, I can't think of anyone that I've generated as much respect as I have for you. Um, you know, there's a saying, <laughs> um, especially on the, on, on the internet and social media, not all, not all heroes wear cakes. And, um, you know, you, you are a hero in my mind for, um, for finding the words to, uh, share, share your story. Um, as I was reading, um, as I was reading it, um, in concluding the pages, one of the thoughts that came to mind was about your tattoo, um, with your number, um, one, three, three, six, two, eight is, are those numbers still visible? Yes. I'm uh, rolling up my sleeve and showing it to you. Oh my God. Visible. Wow. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm, it's a question. This is a sort of a badge of, mm. uh, uh, of honor of survival mm. and, uh, of my belief that we can overcome evil forces and, uh, that democracy people in democratic democratic states have their hands tied behind them in fighting uh, dictatorship because dictatorship has the ability to propagate their propaganda un, un, uh, unopposed, whereas people in the free world have to fight not only the war or the fight against genocide, but they also have to fight the minds of those people who support the evil forces, even so they do not claim that they're evil. They justify it somehow in their mind and they support them. And that is a struggle which uh, is uh, very, very difficult because you have to work, fight a war not only of uh, with arms and explosive, but also with words that are explosive and uh, uh, undermining and uh, trying to undermine the, the, the uh, courage of the people who are fighting on the front. This, is, this has been heavy on me. As you stated earlier, you're heartbroken. I, I can't even imagine the, 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 the intensity um, that this, these, these news stories hit, hit with you. And it, and it, it makes me, makes me upset at my generation that in the generation above me, that we were subjecting you to, to this, um, that you and others in your generation that went through such atrocities have to see, see, see things that, uh, also, uh, deserve the moniker uh, atrocity. 
it makes me upset. Um, and you know, I, you know, I, I feel I'm disappointed in myself and in my generation that we, we put you in this position to, to have to see these mistakes being made again. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. So I think, think about my niece and she is just an incredibly curious young woman, young girl. Um, and she is very interested in the Holocaust now. She's been reading many books on the Holocaust. And uh, I think she's trying, it's not, it's not surprising to me because she's so smart, she's so curious that the Holocaust is really the, the most challenging thing to understand. Um, especially when you're young and you can't understand evil, you can't understand how, how a human being could do anything, um, that would lead to pain and suffering. So I, I want to ask a couple questions that, um, all relate to her. Um, and the first one is what, what's your explanation to her for why the Holocaust happened? That's the most difficult question to answer because uh, it uh, is uh, rooted in, in a million causes uh, that uh, the Holocaust did not happen in isolation. The condition was uh, developed over two millennia from the first expulsion of the Jews by the Romans from Israel uh, and the dispersion of the Jews the Jews have become unwelcome guests in all countries, most of the countries, and at different times of the of the uh, of time and throughout history, and uh, this so it became like we became uh, like an element that a lot of societies felt that we were uh, in in. In, in, that we in, in, in invaded their society and uh, they're uh, providing us with uh, a freedom to work among and live among them uh, resulted in our well-being. And uh, they resented that. And of course, it uh, all comes back to, at first it was... Uh, uh, discrimination due to religion. We were accused of uh, uh, genocide, of uh, deicide, of murdering uh, Christ. Uh, we were uh, accused of being stiff-necked and not accepting the world of the word of uh, uh, Jesus Christ. We were uh, intrinsic. We did not want to uh, become part of their society because of our religious uh, restrictions and uh, so the hatred like a open wound festered and festered till in uh, 1933 it became a political uh, issue uh, and uh, the nazis took advantage to um, mobilize the german people against us and uh, to distract them from what they were really doing. They were attacking the free world. You know, that was, there's no 
reason or rhyme why they had to uh, go into Denmark and uh, uh, and uh, Sweden and why they had to go into uh, France and uh, Luxembourg and uh, all the other countries that they conquered, Poland, Slovakia, Ukraine, Lithuania, Latvia, you know, all of those, uh, there was, there was an excuse for them. Uh, they, they, they galvanized the population in order for them to wage war against the war against the world. And, uh, the hatred of the Jew, the destruction of Jew became actually an element to support their war effort. They confiscated billions of dollars of Jewish property and uh, uh, bank uh, accounts, and which they used to further their war. Uh, whether that is true or not, uh, I, I'm not a historian to tell you, but that is the way I read uh, the uh, people who are trying to determine why uh, the Jews, why this, the, the war was against the Jews. Uh, but I don't think that we will ever find the real reason. I mean, the hatred, it's easy to say it's only hatred, but I think it's more than that. I think it's uh, the fact that they were able to rob uh, the Jewish people of their belongings by uh, eliminating them from the society uh, was maybe a, an important factor in the, in the genocide. Uh, we will never know the truth, but uh, that's that's what the best the, the most the best I can tell you uh, to your uh, daughter who is very intelligent obviously and who understands the questions that has to be posed to which there may be many, many answers. Uh, this is my brother's daughter. Uh, her name is Harper. Thank you. Thank yes. you for correction. Your niece. Niece, exactly. Well, the next question that uh, I think Harper might ask is why, why do people do evil things? Why do people do evil things? You have to ask a, a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anthropologist. Uh, I don't know. Uh, it's uh, uh, from a religious point of view, uh, you know, uh, God created uh, good and created evil. Uh, the, the struggle of uh, the book that is described in the book of Job uh, is trying to wrestle with that. Uh, with the two uh, evil versus good. Uh, I think uh, some people will say that uh, in order to uh, define good, you have to have evil because there would be no definition of good if there was no evil. There would be no need to define good. There would be no need to separate good people from bad. Uh, there would be no struggle between in the world between evil and good, which is the basis of hundreds of wars throughout the ages, the wars of uh, between Christians and uh, within Christian religion, the wars among uh, Muslims, 
uh, Islam, between Islam, between Shiites and Sunnis, between Protestants and Catholics, between the Hogganats and uh, uh, the Catholics. You know, there are many, many wars that were a result of evil. And uh, I think most of them uh, were perpetrated in order to have control over others. Uh, some people wanted to control others and that uh, reflected in the uh, power struggle and uh, in, in the power struggle, uh, evil is used against good uh, because um, both sides have the ability to call the other side evil. So, uh, you know, everybody who's fighting on one side is uh, saying we are the good and they're the evil and vice versa. So, you know, evil is uh, uh, maybe just like a, a situation like gravity. Gravity is what is it, is it good or bad? If you uh, accidentally falling out of a, a 10th floor window, gravity is very bad. But if you're staying upright on the ground, gravity is very good. So it depends on the circumstances and uh, both exist as part of our world. And I don't think we'll ever eliminate them. The only thing we can do is isolate and control it. Mm. Well, final question from, for Harper. Why are you proud to be Jewish? You know, we do not have choice in who we are born to. So that's a given. I was born Jewish. Then I had to struggle to, as you know, and I, and I described it in my book, if I wanted to be Jewish. And during the Nazi type of genocide and possibly during the genocide of Hamas, it's not a question of religion anymore. Because you cannot even, even, when you convert, you're still a Jew. And you're still subject to being eliminated, as we saw in Nazi Germany. So the question is, do you have a choice to be or not to be Jewish? So the choice is only one of being proud or being depressed by it. And I, being an optimist and being a fighter, I feel that that is my role, is to uh, use what is good in Judaism and be proud of it and to learn about what is good about in Judaism and not neglecting what the shortcomings are, what the shortfalls are. And uh, I am proud of the way the Jews have tried to bring conscience and social justice to the world. I'm proud of that. The Bible is an example of that. It's the only document in ancient world which defined what is good and what is bad. It defined the belief in one God, an invisible God, 
a God that created the world. It uh, went against idols and idol worship. And uh, it's the book of the Torah, the Torah itself, the, the Bible, is a huge compilation of what of of the best that man can achieve at each level on each level of society on each, of, of development of the human development and i think that we are uh, that that's something that we can celebrate we can celebrate uh the accomplishment of jewish people the accomplishment of being defeated in the, the uh, in the holocaust and rising from the ashes and creating a state of Israel that is free and accepts all Jews of all stripes and is a home for us and uh, which shows the world that all the things that we were accused of are not true and I'm proud of the way Israel and the IDF is behaving and uh, I'm sorry that they're called upon to exert their force and their power. I'm very sorry about that. But I'm proud the way they conduct themselves. And I know that my children and my grandchildren will equally be proud, not because uh, of me, but because of what my intellect allowed me to conclude from my religion, from my from the traditions of our people, uh, and uh, to move forward. I remember in the book that your it was one of the most emotional moments for me when when I read that your father um, helped you learn the Shema in case you two were instructed to go to the gas chambers. Um, I remember you asking him, you know, what are we going to do? And he said, well, we'll hold our heads high and we'll just keep saying the Shema. Um, is that a prayer that you're able to say today? Or Yes, yes, yes. Uh, does I continue to do that? because it's a declaration of uh, God. Uh, you know, uh, it is curious that the Arab people are saying the same thing. God is great. And, uh, we only have one God that created the world. And we have a common heritage in uh, Abraham and the Jews and the Arabs are, or Muslims are cousins. And that we should fight each other is abhorrent. And I think that, that we must call upon both sides to join hands in the struggle against evil. And that God's grace prevail and that God's uh, blessing should be upon us.
And I'm, since I'm a Kohen, I'm going to give you a blessing. May God continent shine upon you. May God keep you. And may God's face, may God's grace shine upon you and give you peace. Amen. Would you say the Shema together? Yes. Okay, together. Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad.